Hey, everybody. Welcome to Disrupt TV. We're in the green room today. We have a special co-host, Holger Mueller. Um, also introduced our guests. But we're trending towards Bitcoin 24K. It's too bad if you bought at 50. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Uh, hoping everyone luck. So uh, markets are back, and I think there's a sense of optimism. So welcome. we got an awesome guest today. So Kathy, where are you, and what are you talking about today? Yeah, um, thanks for having me, Ray. Um, I am in Newport Beach, California. Um, I'm at, from Hoga Health Institution, and we're going to be talking about digital health and innovation and a bunch of fun topics on the healthcare spectrum, I guess. Excellent. Thanks for having us. We're happy to have you here. Sridhar, where are you calling from? What are we talking about? Yeah, I'm uh, in Tinkasi, India. It's a small town, rural India, southern, near the southern tip. Um, I run this company called Zoho, so we are going to discuss uh, what Zoho is doing and what I'm doing here. So. Very, very cool. We got the co-founder and CEO of Zoho. Thank you so much for being here. And of course, Holger, where are you calling in from? Our special guest host. I'm also calling in from India. Happy to do my best Vala impression. I'm calling in from Goa in India. Excellent. All right, well with this, we're gonna send it back to you, L. You can do a countdown and then we'll start the show. All right, three, two, one. <laughs> Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Disrupt TV. This is our episode number 287. Believe it or not, Vala Afshar is off on a special mission and project. We'll have to ask him next week. But we have our amazing co-host, Holger Mueller. Holger is a vice president and principal analyst here at Constellation Research, one of the top HR technologists, HR tech analysts in the world, named to the HR Tech 100 all the time. And of course, he's looking at where the future of work is and the intersection of enterprise acceleration what you can do in the future with your enterprise and really where the world of infinite computing is headed. So Holger, you're actually based in where at the moment? Well, I'm based in San Diego, but I'm currently visiting Goa in, in Southern India, medium India. Uh, you have to help us exactly where it's characterized to be in uh, Bamboo, right? <laughs> Which part of India as a resident expert. But I think it's the first time we have disrupted Disrupt TV tour with two people out of India at the same time, right? It is, and we thank you so much. It is so late in the night, so late in the evening. Uh, but yes, so welcome to this Rough TV. As you know, it's our weekly show, and uh, I'm your co-host here, Ray Wong. And of course, we're going to kick off with our guest, our first guest. 
is none other than Sridhar Bamboo, the co-founder and CEO of Zoho Group. He's known for unconventional choices. Sridhar started a product company in India when the services sector was all the rage in the IT sector. In 2005, he began the Zoho University program with six high school students who were trained for two years in computer science and eventually absorbed in the company. Currently, 15% of Zoho's workforce is made of ZU graduates. Instead of opening new offices in Metro Tier 1 centers, he's actually going to smaller towns and suburbs. And we want to talk about transnationalism and localism with them. And in 2016, the Tenkasi office located in rural India launched Zoho Desk, a product that was developed there. Sridhar has been instrumental in deepening and broadening the product portfolio at Zoho and stressing on the need for integrated suites. He's also advocating more on R&D than marketing. In fact, as a result, in 2017, they launched Zoho One, which has offered over 40 plus, I think it's 50 plus, based on the last analyst day we went to, uh, products, and an amazing lineup there. So, Sridhar, welcome to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Hogar. Um, Oscar. <laughs> We're happy to have you here. Hogar, you have the first question. Go ahead. Well, it's great to have you on the show, uh, Sridhar. I mean, it's an amazing company. People might not be familiar, but you really went beyond building everything by yourself, not just building a complete ERP suite of CRM and all so on, but you're also vertically doing stuff. You have your own email, your own word processor, your own spreadsheet. Yeah. When you do a call with you guys, you have your own collaboration software. This, the interesting thing is what prompted you to build so much more than anybody else out of one hand? Yeah. So this is... Uh... I mean, I go back to 1996 when we got started, now 26 years. The observation and that even then was India produced all of the software talent. Even in 96, that was true. And yet we did not have product-based companies. We had only IT services. It was clear to me then with all the massive talent pool that we are producing and demographically, if you look at what was coming, that we could build substantial technology companies out of India. That was obvious. We just had to put it together. So that was the, really the uh, vision behind it. And in order to do this, we actually stayed private because to really execute on this, you have to have a long-term outlook. And if you know, if you had to go public, we wouldn't have it. So that's why we, we combined this. You know, to be able to do all this, we had to stay private, and we did. And now, 26 years later, we have this you know, expansive portfolio and still growing. Yeah, but the genius behind this is actually different. You didn't charge enterprise pricing like the way the other SaaS companies did. And in fact, your cost structure is very different. It was built for SMBs. How did you come to that vision that if you want to play in this space, you have to operate in that space's cost and price model? Yeah, and that's, you know, SMBs are always price sensitive everywhere you know, in the world. And it's even more true in India. So and that means that you have to be extremely competitive in order to play. And you also have to offer deep value in terms of how rich is your uh, full platform and how many software is there, how much of the software is there to do their business. And what we did you know, with our end-to-end -end, R&D strategy we decided the way to save money is not spend so much on marketing and instead spend on R&D. It will lead to slower growth in the beginning, and it did. Right? That was that was trade-off. But once it takes off at scale, this is very viable. And the savings in marketing, then we can flow back into R&D and serve customers 
today we have over 600,000 orgs around the world that trust Zoho and then we are growing very strongly now. So the strategy works Super eventually. <laughs> Super interesting. And I love to hear it because often companies don't spend enough on R&D, but lots on marketing. When was yep. that takeoff point, Sridhar, that uh, you um, saw now things are being noticed, um, the company's taking off? Particularly about last about seven or eight years, starting in about 2013 or 14 is when uh, at least the media and more broadly we became known. In fact, even as late as say 2008-9, there was an article that said uh, the smartest unknown entrepreneur, referring to me. And so, and I, we actually, I was happy to be unknown. That, that never bothered me. But it was saying that in India there is an entrepreneur and is unknown and that that was the article and so even at that point we had revenue but we had no publicity at all and we would not spend mm -hmm. on publicity so <laughs> yeah. but what was great for you build a certain functional scope did you have a certain number of customers customers start talking to you the famous late house customer what was the takeoff moment for you guys um in particular the zoho one we launched about four years ago That is our uh, full suite covering all of our uh, products end to end. That was a key catalyst. That's when things you know, in a, went vertical much more. And that's uh, you know, offered at an extremely attractive price point. And we called it the operating system for business. And initially, you know, people were skeptical. You know, people were saying, you know, does really work in SaaS, all that. But it did actually. It is. Uh, it's. It, and today, that suite alone has over 60,000 customers and growing very rapidly. So that is a key takeoff event. It has also catalyzed the broader adoption because people coming to Zoho knowing that their needs will be taken care of. It is That's amazing. A critical brand image to get. It is amazing. I mean, this is a concept Holger's been talking about a lot, enterprise acceleration. It's a super hot topic, right? And the fact that customers are growing into your software, right? But to keep up with that, you need skills and talent, right? It's crazy. I mean, in the US, we have 11 million job openings, five, six million people looking for jobs, another five, six million people that are totally missing. We have no idea where they went, right? Some are taking off, spending time with families. Some people are out of the market. Some people are still getting a government check. I want to know who these people are. Um, there are other people who are just you know you know they're, they're done right they they, they want to like you know do something different and they're in the middle of a job search or starting a company and it's such dynamic times you i don't know how you thought about this or what the vision was started going into the tier three cities you talked about a concept called transnationalism and local at the same time and talk about that because it can't be easy upskilling folks from different areas but you invest a lot of money doing that, at least from what we gathered from Zoho Day a few days ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, see, companies often talk about employee loyalty. I turned that around and asked, you know, before we ask someone to be loyal, have we been loyal to them? Have we invested in creating and nurturing the talent? Only if we are loyal can we even talk about employee loyalty. That was the starting premise. And, and all of it, I think that way, you know, before I ask, something of the world what have i done to ask that right so and that is why uh, we decided and there is in, in, and i talked about the talent pool in india there's a lot of raw talent in india and it's true also in the us if you go to tier two three towns there's a lot of young people 
who don't have great opportunities. Clear real quick. A tier three town has how many people in India though? Our tier two towns are pretty small. So keep going. <laughs> in India, a tier three town would have about a hundred thousand people. Okay. okay. <laughs> and a tier two town has a couple of million. Yeah, right? Tier two, yeah, you know, a million would be a tier two actually in India. Okay. Right. You want to be clear? I want to be clear. So the same as China, right? You know, these these uh, yes. you have to scale right. everything up right. by a factor of uh, ten compared to any other country because we have the largest. You know, we are, I think very soon we are going to challenge China as the highest population in the world. So, yes. and yeah, the town we are in nearby is about uh, 100,000 people. And these towns, even in the US, the smaller cities like this, don't have a lot of technology jobs all there. McAllen, and Texas. There you go. McAllen, Texas, yeah, where we open. It's an exact, no, uh, and in fact, McAllen, Texas and Tenkasi are very similar in terms of that profile, population, lack of tech jobs, all that. We felt that there's a lot of talent in these places that nobody is accessing, but we have to create and nurture the talent. It's, it's a potential talent, latent talent. We have to bring that out. So that was the thing. I, I don't know, entrepreneurship is about solving problems. You know, you don't get to complain that there's no talent or lack of talent shortage, all that. Go solve the problem. So, and so that's the thing we created. So you have a talent pipeline you create, create and nurture talent. And then you have the market opportunity that you know we talked about. So putting that two together, that's really the, the Zoho story. Transnational localism. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love and, the and transnational localism. Is uh, basically I, 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 the transnational localism part is recognizing that the same pattern applies everywhere. It's true in the U.S. Oh. It's true in Europe. It's true in China. The smaller cities, the smaller towns, are not having the same opportunity as the big cities and collectively there's just you know there's so much population still in these places demographically they're actually richer because of affordability of home prices and all that people tend to have more kids in these towns than in the big cities so which means you actually have a lot of youthful talent that often has to migrate to the big cities and if we can keep them and that's the uh, we can keep them rooted there and provide jobs you actually will have a really good you know uh, uh, good employee, and it's also good for the company. So. Yeah. I, I love what you said, like entrepreneurship is about solving problems, and you clearly have solved the yeah. problem of finding tech town and growing and training in tech yeah. town. But I also really love that you say that you cannot just expect employee loyalty. You have to show them that you like them, so yeah. it's the give and take. And the give very often gets forgotten, forgotten in the Western world, right? So exactly. I think it's great to hear the approach on that. And is, is there any hint or tip you would give another fellow CEO, founder of a tech company, software company, how to do the give uh, to the employees? Yeah, really it starts with uh, what are you investing in in creating the talent? What, you know, a lot of companies, they use phrases like we want you to hit the ground running. We want you to be productive from day one, all of that. But it's really, you know, with a complicated uh, job requirement scenario, even somebody with experience would require time to get into this. And we invest in training, a lot of it. And that's critical. And we invest in the, we demonstrate to the employee that we will, we care about them, we invest in them. That's very important, that skill development. And yeah. once you do that, the, the, person becomes very productive over uh, maybe a year or two. And that is when you actually you start to see the magic. 
and our products you know all our products really come from that really putting that together and you do that naturally you know you don't have to ask people are more loyal because they know this company invested in me this company believed in me and that's really the way that you put it together and a lot of companies are not able to do that because there's the two short term oriented so my real advice is don't be so short term in your thinking think longer okay. term think in five year horizon that's what i'll say yeah. very good longer term thinking and the company has my back right so that that resilience exactly. loyalty exactly. Uh, sense of belonging are all important things for you be learning in the first world exactly. are missing so it's great yeah. to see how you were able to deliver that with a small startup at the time in rural india very very good lessons yeah. to learn Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, one of the things that you've been advocating for are areas around ESG, and that's an area where you've been, you know, very, very passionate about. Uh, what? How did you get to this state of thinking? Like, and what areas of ESG are important for you? Yeah, the, of course, the climate change is real. Climate change, is, you know, all of us, every human being on the planet, has to have a, a strong responsibility for it. i passionately believe that we have to uh, definitely we have to think about our lifestyles how we consume what we consume and all of it all of those things. that's on the climate side but also i actually look at this holistically it's also a social problem of inequality worldwide and i am not a leftist by persuasion i'll be clear on this but i still do worry that societies that become dramatically unequal also will become unstable now politically socially all of that so for the interest of social stability fairness all of that you have to address this uh, equality issues and that also goes to speak for this uh, talent creation all that because once you invest in it naturally you can give people a hand up so that they can uh, uh, raise themselves so that's and that's how we come to that social part of it and so this is the really two key parts for me the whole climate issue which to me ultimately is about how prosperity has to be contented we have to have contentment along with prosperity now if you have constant you know more 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 well we are going to destroy the planet it's becoming obvious these these things you know it, regardless of your political persuasion these issues are now you know are coming to the fore in a similar way if you have massive inequality that is going to lead to social conflict ever more conflict so we have to address that too and talent nurturing talent companies have a vital role to play so those are the real uh, goals for me wise words certainly i i have a, a sticking thing on this uh, show where i keep asking for people what is in your background you have so many things hanging in your background why don't you highlight one of the pictures or art behind you for us freedom yeah. and why it's hanging you see the you see the person the like this the, that is swami vivekananda yes one of yep. the yeah swami vivekananda is a leading uh, saint was you know, uh, i'd say is the kind of the patron saint of modern india in a way he mm -hmm. lived about 100 years ago 110 years ago and he captured the vision he was the one of the first monks to travel to the us he actually spoke in chicago and you can look him up swami vivekananda he traveled all over india in his short life he actually uh, set the nation on fire in terms of a vision that's both very global in mindset and also deeply rooted in 
our own civilization so that is uh, he's a role model for me and i so much of his uh, writings i take inspiration from that's why his picture is there excellent yeah no i mean he died at the early age of 39 and uh, yeah, his famous speech was what in Chicago, 1893. He brought Hinduism to the Western world. It was a, it was a very, very powerful moment, I, I think. So, yeah. what else? What else do we have back here? We've got like some pictures. So, yeah, you got some all, pictures. Uh, various Hindu deities. That is uh, Shiva. There, this is Krishna. You have a lot of the Hindu deities, and you know, typically you, you find them all over. When you travel in India, you will you will be this imagery will be all over. So that's, uh, and I love that colorful imagery too. And uh, so that's part of it. That's why I have, this, uh, that's there. And it's simply on the wall and I just happened to sit here and it just became a signature. <laughs> wow. Well, hey, it is amazing. Zoho was founded in 1996. Is that correct? Yes. We are 25 years. years in, yeah, 20. Yeah. What, what did your next 25 years look like? What, what do you think? Real quick before we wrap up. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we are still investing in R&D, and you heard that in the analyst event, Zoho Day event a few days ago, and we are uh, expanding on our portfolio, going deeper, and, and both depth and breadth in terms of product portfolio. And we introduced, uh, uh, for example, our uh, new coming products, some of the products that I really can't talk about here yet, but it is this commitment to R&D is a critical thing. And we, we believe that we still have a lot more to do and we have some unique perspective on how software is developed. So we are going deeper into the process of software development, the tooling, all of that. So that too. So we'll, we'll, we'll see a lot more of these coming out in the next few years. This is wonderful. We are so happy to have you here. We are here with um, Sridhar Vembu, CEO of Zoho. You can follow him on Twitter at S-V-E-M-B-U underscore. Uh, and more importantly, thank you so much for staying up late and thank being you. with us here. So. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Hogan. All right, take care. Yeah. Crazy, Holger. Look wow. at this. The legend. Yeah. The, the, the biggest, deepest, meanest suite which is out there. If you want to have something in the same UX with no cost of integration for employees, so is the product to look at. Very impressive. Wow. But speaking about legends, we got Kathy Aziz Naren. She's the chief digital officer at Hoag Hospital and a BT150 winner. So uh, she's been leading development at Hoag's digital strategy and transformation. Uh, and in order, uh, she's been doing a lot of innovation, both in high quality care and exceptional patient experience. This is everything from optimizing relationships between patients, you know, EMRs, health information data, digital tools, right? And figuring out how the patient experience comes together, right? Moving people from offline to online, of course, where we're moving to a digital health world. So um, Kathy's had tons of experience. She joined Hogue from one of my favorite companies, American Express, uh, as a Centurion member, uh, where she held various leadership roles, driving digital product marketing and data strategies for the company. And of course, she's delivered some of the first ever digital solutions for the organization, including mobile experiences that better connect businesses to their cards, centralized data platforms, in-house design and creative solutions for teams. So Kathy, so much for being here. This is amazing to have you. And of course, I'll leave Holger with the first question but welcome to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome, Kathy. Good to see another Southern California resident uh, on the show, right? So first of all, I have an Indian guest now, a Southern California guest, so I'm not in Southern California. But BT150 questions are always about career changes too, and Ray mentioned it. Why would you go from shiny American Express financial institution 
Go we'll leave home without it. Messy, difficult, of course, helping humans has good aspects too, like into healthcare. What made you, prompted your career change? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I loved my time at Amex. It was a truly empowering, amazing 15 years there. And when the question came up and this opportunity came in healthcare, I actually wasn't looking to leave. I really was having a good time and a good part of my career there. And so the draw was really a couple parts. One, it was Hogue, um, their approach to how they were thinking about healthcare and what they wanted to do in the space was a draw. The other piece was I like to go do hard things. And so at the time when I heard, hey, there's an opportunity to bring that 15 years of experience that I had in financial services and think about digital and where it needs to go on the healthcare spectrum, it was appealing to me to come see, hey, can I bring any of that knowledge, that background, that skill set and make an impact in this industry? So um, it was kind of twofold, a little bit of both. Hogue did a really good job of sharing what was special about them and the pull and draw of the challenge kind of brought me over. Wow, that's amazing. So. Yeah. And when we think about this, like healthcare is not easy, right? I mean, we've had a number of folks here uh, that have, you know, come into healthcare. Uh, they've like, been completely like you know, blown away by how hard it is. Right. And when you think about the transition into healthcare, um, what what changes, what are similar? Right. What did you bring with you that actually made, you know, like lessons learned from you know, tech and digital in the financial service, the consumer world, Apple healthcare? And what were your biggest surprises when you got here? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, financial services being there for such a long time, I was there to see the journey it took because they weren't always on a digital spectrum either. And that did help as I thought about this industry because it was, it's, it's lagged as we think about digital technology and how it's been brought into healthcare. And so there's a ton that I could say I brought into the mix or with me as lessons learned. Nothing's one-to-one -one because the industry complexities are different. Uh, but there's a few, like, I would say principles or things I learned that made Amex do it well in the parts that they did that I felt were important to bring into the mix when I took on this role um, at Hogue. You know, one is the grounding with the customer. It's not actually the technology. It's just focus on the customer, focus on who you're solving for, keep them at the table constantly, obsess over them, honestly. Like don't forget that the things you're building, the problems you're solving are really around the human that has to use the thing or the product. Um, the second is, you know, you are, um, you need to constantly iterate that market is changing and new ideas are popping up. The health tech startup world is on fire, like the fintech startup world was, which pushed Amex in, in certain ways as well. So you constantly have to be questioning what you've done and constantly iterate on what you've done. Um, and I guess the last one that I'd call out is probably the team and the, the people you're bringing along. Like, I feel hiring people smarter than yourself is important to acknowledge in the mix bringing them on the journey, adding new skill sets into the industry. You can't really do the work ahead with the exact same talent set. So you're going to have to bring new talent set and skill sets into this. And acknowledging that and doing that in the right way and being really picky about who you bring along in that journey is something I, I would say I brought that those lessons from my Amex time into what I'm doing now. Very, very, very helpful. Hedgehog a long time ago, still in Germany, told me once A class people hire A class people. 
and B-class people hire C-class people because they try to stay on top of them, right? So, and A-class people are not afraid to have uh, people who work for them who are smarter and better for them, right? So I think that's a great guiding principle. But um, hey, interesting question for me is like Christmas is coming. It's only five months. If I could grant you with my gray beard as a Santa Claus in healthcare, if I could grant you three <laughs> free wishes, what would you like to have happen? Like maybe something go away, which is difficult in healthcare with hyper or some technology would you like to do or something you would like hope employees or hope patients to be alive with? What are the top three wishes if you could make them happen like this should happen? Oh, wow. Holger, I hope you are the genie in this mix and it actually comes true. Um, but I think, uh, let me see, the first would probably be open source, headless EHRs on the, wow. on the market. Um, I really feel experience is gonna be a critical piece to differentiate in healthcare. There's so many players. And in order to differentiate, you're going to need to figure out how you live on top of the AHR in a different way, right? Otherwise, we're all just getting out-of-the-box solutions that we're trying to plug into our systems. So my one is uh, open source, headless versions of EHR world, I would say is one. Uh, two is, you know, um, I would say getting uh, the talent set uh, and the remote work world and flexibility in work, getting us all on the same page. You know, some industries are ahead in how adaptive they are to it. Some are not. Healthcare still a little bit behind as we think about how fast we can move in that space and how do we make uh, non-clinical work and roles um, adapting to that flexible mindset. Because especially as you're trying to hire tech talent, that becomes a, a thing and, and an ask constantly. And let me think, the third has to be really good. I think the third would be um, what we've built or what we've done at Hogue. And when I say we, myself and my team, that it actually impacts health outcomes in a positive way for the, the OT community and the patient base. Um, whatever we're doing is not necessarily to just bring technology into the organization. And when I took this role, it wasn't about that. It was, can we build product and put things on the market that actually improve health outcomes? And so I would guess the third would be we've done something here that actually does impact it in, in a way that improves the patient experience and their outcomes. Super important. Sure. And, and we're seeing it across the board almost everywhere. Uh, now, one of the things that you've been talking about is technology. Tech on its own doesn't do anyone good, right? And as you know, you know technology is really, really about supporting any kind of mission or business for goals up there. Um, and is really about right who's got it figured out who's got technology down right this is like one of the most interesting things that's been with us for so long uh but but who, who's figured it out well you know i don't know if anyone has figured it out well and i think it's because you, you know you have you have strong players for sure right obviously you're you can point to all the big tech out there doing things in technology world and advancing it from cloud ar vr etc but as it relates to figuring it out, I would say if you, um, to do that, you would have to know everything the customer and the consumer market is demanding. And it's changing so rapidly that we are all on our toes constantly. I don't think that anyone has it fully buttoned up to say, hey, we have this in the bag, it's done, we don't need to look at it anymore and we'll win it for perpetuity. I think that it's constantly changing. Everyone should be on their toes. Consumer expectation demand changes overnight. Like I wake up every day, I read something new. I'm like, okay, that's changed. 
let's look at X, Y, Z. Um, and having that evolution and that ethos of like constantly relooking at what you have and if it's still working, I think technology has to constantly do that. So I don't know if I have a player that I'd say has it fully figured out, but I do think the startup world is on fire. They're doing a lot of great stuff in the niche spaces, right? How it all connects is going to be a big question. And then the health institution world, when I think about technology, they're on a journey. They can do some impactful things. But until we get to a world where there's a lot more open source, a lot more headless acceptance of like technology, a lot more cloud-based flowing of data, um, we're going to be on a journey to figuring that out as well. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, very, very interesting, right? And obviously security is a big concern. Like I said, I live in San Diego. My health data got hacked in the Scripps hack, right? We still don't know what really has happened. Uh, how, I mean, security is boring until something breaks and something's bad. How important is the agenda? I, is there any lessons learned? Are you doing something specifically at Hoke in that regards? Any thoughts, Kathy? Uh, security is number one, and and just even coming from the background of American Express, like data privacy and privacy of customer information has always been high on the list of how we're doing things there. So I brought that thinking even with me as I've come into healthcare, knowing that it is very highly regulated. We do have a lot of sensitive data. We can't have that leakage, right? But yet we are being tasked to build more consumer-centric product sets that do unlock and democratize more access to things. And so, you know, one principle is just staying really close to our cyber partners internally. We're working hand in hand to ensure that whatever decisions we're making, whatever products we're gonna put out there, are we doing all the right things to ensure they are as secure as we possibly can make them? Um, the second is also staying ahead of it a little bit, right? Not just saying we have all the principles internally. We're also thinking about externally. We're looking at a few different companies that can come in and say, what's changed in the market on the tech side? And what's more breakable? What's less breakable? How do we really think about the security as everything is going into the cloud? And so we're doing both. We're adapting what our cyber team, who is awesome, have already put on the ground and ensuring that what we build and put out stays lockstep with them. But we're also thinking about new external measures that are out there to, to ramp up on that end of the spectrum and make sure that we don't put products out there that, get, that are easily hacked or you know non-secure. Yeah, no, this is kind of fun. And when we think about, you know, where the future is headed in terms of all these markets, right? Healthcare is the one that has a lot of opportunity, impacts the most lives, right? We're looking at all these types of things from population health management to personalized medicine. They're all data driven. Uh, that security and privacy aspect becomes even more important than ever. Do you think we're going to get to a point where like I can just throw out my EMR like the way I actually have like a, you know, a Annex card, right? Or it's like an all sitting in an NFT on the blockchain side or am I like just dreaming? I'd love to dream with you. <laughs> I think, you know, we, we, we thought things that were never possible become possible. Right. So why not? Why would it not happen at some point in the future? And I think it'll come down to the patient or the, the consumer choice. Right. We leverage that. Like if you are someone that really wants to activate that, at what point does that become your decision and not the EHR's decision or the health system's decision? And if that world does become more about choice driven. Right. Like I'm opting in. I want to have that world. Um, why wouldn't it be possible? 
I, 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 won't get you, I won't get you in trouble, but my API, uh, you know, my healthcare records is, is stuck behind Mumps APIs by someone. I don't know whom, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. But you know, why my wish, right? When I was talking to Holger, I was like, one wish is like open source, and I'm not saying open source to go share everyone's information, but it allows us to build better product and better output and better insight for the person, right? I feel like health data needs to be used more uh, effectively to actually help people not just be locked away in the way it is right now. And we have to figure out a way to the point we're all making. We can, can we do it securely to the, to the point where it's helping Kathy, it's helping Ray, it's helping Holger. You know, not saying that we all have to share everything all the time, but at least on the individual level, how do we make it smarter and more helpful to that person? So I'm dreaming Absolutely with you. Right. Yeah, we all hope for that, right? Making the difference of active living healthcare record right which helps with contraindications and all the useful things which you as a patient have to pay attention now and uh, you might not be able to catch that all but you mentioned all the innovation happening on the startup level if you look at the top end of the healthcare market right you see some consolidation with oracle buying cerner um as you as a person in the industry as an industry observer what do you think of that development and are you an epic or cerner and who do you think will buy epic yeah, I mean, it's, it's such an interesting question. We are an Epic user um, here at Hogue. Um, I thought it was, it was very interesting that they did it, but I can understand why they did that, right? I mean, the EHR, for the most perspective, to your point, it is you need that from a regulatory perspective. You need that system that's going to store everything in that secure manner. And they figured out that market for the most part, right? And to strip that down, build your own, it's wildly expensive. And I've learned that now being two years in, it's like, it, that's wildly expensive and it's probably the benefit you get is not that great. So how we live on top of them, how we make them a subsystem that you can then differentiate on top is gonna become more and more common. I think Google's on the same path, right? And my inkling is if I saw an epic path of them pairing with someone, I would presume it might be that based on what I've seen Google doing on the Google Health Spectrum and their EHR dabbles that they've done. Um, I don't know for sure, but that would be my hunch, at least, <laughs> if they were to go that path. Um, and I do think Epic has seen you know, a decent amount of pressure to figure out how they become a bit more, wall less walled garden and more um, able to flex in the world of what people want to build on top of them. Wow, so pretty wild. So, hey, one of the things you probably learned at Amex was really how loyalty points work. And uh, we were wondering, like, how you could build incentive models uh, in healthcare. Have you ever thought about that? And you know, would patients be interested in that for preventive health, right? You get points for doing certain things early or you get points for potentially, you know, uh, you know, you know, taking, you know, taking an exam earlier or actually doing a checkup earlier or actually building that kind of things in some of the, uh, this value-based healthcare that we're actually heading in that direction. Uh, is that something like, uh, in my dream state here, uh, something that you're thinking about, like how to bring those things together uh, within the healthcare ecosystem? Yeah, it's, it's so funny you mentioned that because we're actually testing a couple of ideas like that, the gamification world and an incentivized world, like what people feel it are the incentives. Now, healthcare is a bit more emotive, right? When you're talking episodic care, very different. You're already, you're being treated. It's a, it's a different dialogue altogether. And I don't know if incentives necessarily work in that space because people, the incentive is like, save my life. You know, it's right. there's, preventative, yes. extremely preventative though. There's a lot that we could be testing into. And we started to think about 
what and how to incentivize. And the incentives might look a little bit different. Senior populations that might be around the loneliness factor, right? How do you create programs and incentives that help them with that as a, as a cohort? Um, whereas the younger generation might be competitive, you know? How are we thinking about lifestyle, especially in Southern California and Newport Beach, there's a lot of lifestyle and active lifestyle that people are into, the hiking, biking, and everything else. How do you take those nuggets and really make it into a competitive play as we think about preventative programs? So we've been testing a few things um, here at our innovation hub here at Hogue on the, on the digital front. So I'll run back with you if we latch on to any nuggets that parallel path that Amex thinking, but we've started to think a little bit about it as well. Perfect. I was going to take my Amex points and convert them for a you know, primary care visit, but I don't think that's going to happen. Yet. <laughs> I need trouble for healthcare. <laughs> I need to I would be remiss if I wouldn't ask you about the artwork in your background. Oh. Tell us a little about it. Yeah, there we go. So, fun fact we're in a new space and um, we're still like designing out all of the offices, et cetera. But this particular piece, I have just moved out here from New York and it's been two years now. And so, one, it's a, a drawing, I guess, of David. And it, the graffiti kind of reminded me of New York. So, I kind of saw it and I was like, oh, Whoa. I like the and I want to bring that into my office. So there's no deep, deep connective story there, just more of like, I was missing New York, I saw it, and I was like, oh, I'm going to just add that into my office space. Wow. Nice. David, David in the office. And he has yeah, a, right. what's this, this thing that he has? It's an orange, orange one, right? So how, how he kills a giant. Right? <laughs> Very good. We're here with Kathy Aziz Naran, she's the Chief Digital Officer at Hogue, and you can follow her at Hogue Health underscore. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show, and see you in Half Moon Bay at the BT150 event. So take care. Awesome. Thank you. Wow, Holger. We've got some amazing guests, very, very smart folks, and we always bring in amazing authors to the mix. So who do we have next? Well, think about it. A really, really interesting individual. We've got Seth Goldenberg, author of Radical <laughs> Curiosity, and he's the founder and CEO at Curiosity and Company. What a way to name a company. I love that name. So, <laughs> Seth, you've been a designer, an activist, a curator, an entrepreneur, and you know, you've been using this notion of questioning to catalyze innovation cultural change. I bet you were the kid that always said, why, why? So <laughs> founder and CEO of Curiosity & Co, one of a kind bookstore, experience laboratory, design venture studio, and the creator of the Idea Salons, in invitational thought leader retreats that tackle essential questions of our time. Goldenberg has less uh, high profile projects with clients such as Apple, Amex, Oprah Winfrey Network, and the governor of Rhode Island. It might be that Gina Raimondo person. Uh, he also founded Dialogue City, the Civic Arts Festival for the 2008 Democratic National Convention. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Wired, and Fast Company, and he lives in the island of Jamestown. You can follow him on Twitter at Goldenberg Seth, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. That is the best intro ever. <laughs> well, just typically, he's not here today, so I have to channel my inner Vala to, to be able to pull that off. But hey, I do have a question for you. So, have you been in the Rhode Island area a lot? Have you been working there for quite some time? So, have you ever met a guy named Saul Kaplan who ran Business Innovation Factory? So, I, I, I do know Saul quite well, actually. Yes. Have you had him on? Saul and I were having like lobster rolls in uh, the Cape uh, on Thursday. So, oh, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. 
Uh, but yeah, Biff, so one of the show, the first question, but I just wanted to set this. It sounded like you were like a Rhode Island guy, so. Absolutely, absolutely. No, B business innovation factor is a fantastic community. Uh, love Biff. Here's hats out to yeah, solve. You're paying attention. Water, right? So must be something in the water. So what interests me is like very impressive what you're doing. Very disruptive way of teaching innovation, getting people to talk about things unscripted. At the same time, author, what got you to this place? Was it something where you had an inner calling? Were people catalyzing you? Was it a combination? Uh, how do you get where you are today, Seth? Oh, that's a great question. Well, thanks for having me. I, I love your energy. Uh, I guess, you know, my, my father was a philosopher. My mother was an educator, a school teacher. Wow. And I grew up as a, uh, an artist. Actually, I was exhibiting uh, my paintings professionally in galleries by the time I was 11. So I think when these three forces of creativity and learning and philosophy kind of merged together, I was exploring the practice of radical curiosity before I knew to call it that, right? Wow, very powerful. Very Love the yeah. glasses, by the way. Do you always wear them, or is it like special Friday glasses? Or no, these are these are fun. Oh. You know, fun about these? They're 3D printed, actually. Oh, oh man, I just thought you went to Warby Parker and chose one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Seth Goldberg, you heard it here first, is in this blue face right now. So, but yeah. <laughs> But this is awesome. Hey, so in the book, right, one of the things that you talk about, and it's important, it's, it's really the legacy narrative. Um, go deep on that. What does that mean? And why do we have to have a legacy narrative? Yeah. Well, it's not so much we have to have it. Actually, what we'd like to do is upend it. Upend uh, it, yes. End the legacy narrative. So we practice in my studio uh, cultural change, very ambitious social system industry scale cultural change. And one of the things that we've found when we're really trying to design how things change is that stories and narratives surround us. Uh, we live by them, we kind of have identity markers by them, but actually we're born into narratives that were authored long before we came into the picture. They are legacies that we have inherited that we didn't necessarily author or write. And we're walking around living in the rules by someone else's game, right? So for us, legacy narratives are, they're invisible, they're banking, they're public education, they're healthcare, all the social systems that we live by are historical narratives that actually innovators are in the process of reimagining, disrupting, and uh, building emerging new narratives, right? No, makes a lot of sense. And you're right. You want to shed those legacy narratives. You don't bring them with you. Like, why do we still have them? Right. Those, and, and how to crack through that. So, but we've one, found one of my pet peeves there is so, sorry, one of my pet peeves I was speaking right away when Seth was saying this. In the tech industry, you have so many executive changes, people moving from A to B. And that the next company at B since six, nine, 12, over month, over a year. And they still say, you know, I came from so-and-so and that's why I did this and this. And they talk more about their past than what they're doing at their new station, right? So sometimes I wish, okay, read back about Cortez, burn the ships at the beach, right? So you're at the new <laughs> place now. Stop talking about the legacy, the old stuff that you were great. I know. Yeah. Is it's it so true. all the time too late? Right? It's terrible. And I don't know why they do this, but I guess it's the comfort level. Why, why do we have, I mean, burn the legacy is great, right? And we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't have retro thinking, but why do we have this why do we do this as humans 
Well, I think this is why narratives have really interested us. I think we tell ourselves stories uh, because yeah. it makes us comfortable, right? It's hard to feel stable and that we understand ourselves when we're upended or we're uh, de-linked from things that we recognize. So I think we find we grapple onto and hold close narratives that bring us comfort because at least we recognize them. Uh, but indeed, I think, look, the practice of radical curiosity, radical, that term radical comes from radicalis, the Latin root of literally the idea of roots, deeply rooted. So we're, we're interested in here in my practice, it's not so much just kind of passive curiosity, but radical curiosity is the deep human condition question. What do we really mean by health? What is safety and security? So when we ask questions about racism or police or money, we tend to still skate at the surface. And to your point, I love your example, a lot of leaders lean on anecdotes and case studies they recognize. So actually more rarely than we realize, are we really doing disruptive things? We're often just swapping out and staying at the surface. You know, and you also mentioned the fact that, you know, unlearning is a form of activism, right? So I got to shed this legacy narrative. I got to unlearn things, right? And and how, how do you do that in a culture where transformation is already hard enough? So what are you doing to enable that? Absolutely. Yeah, I, it's interesting, right? Because learning in traditional schooling, it seems to me we just keep adding right? more electives, more curriculum. You get into your job. We now have to upskill you. It's like all of learning has been additive. I think the idea of unlearning, because it's based on questioning, is to maybe question what we think we know to be true. Unlearning the models that were untouchable. You know, we have, I have a chapter in the book saying education is too big to fail, but maybe it should. Right. <laughs> That's a great point, right? Like, how do how do we make that happen? So, yeah. Because interestingly, only through failure and the destructive composition of that, and hopefully nobody gets killed and hurt and so on, you reinvent <laughs> really and go through the pain to rethink the process because of the urgency, right? I mean, they're very common in, in, in sports and in Olympic sports, nations trying to compete better, failing, or whatever, getting kicked out of the World Cup as a European soccer fan and so on. Then, then they start to do the fundamentals, get the youth studies and so on. So I think it's the unlearning is more like bury the old best practices, right? But I, I had one more question. It's just a strategic thinker, right? Uh, it's always a question about the last book you wrote and the next book you write. I love to ask you, what is the book you really want to write but realistically, you will never get to in this lifetime. Ah. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a good one. Uh, Ooh, I, what, what an original question. You are radically curious. I love this. Um, you know, luckily, I'm young, so I, I hope I have many books left in me. Uh, but, you know, it, it, especially with the uh, joyfulness that I see that you run your, your show and these dialogues, I've become really fascinated with humor. I love comedy as a strategy to maybe get us comfortable asking harder questions. Uh, I do have one chapter, but I could imagine it to your, to your beautiful question as an entire book. I actually look at Dave Chappelle and Hannah Gadsby as two controversial but exciting characters in how humorists have become today's philosophers. And, 
I love the weaponization of humor to actually get us to drop our guard to maybe talk about the real shit. Wow. First Amendment freedoms, freedoms, freedoms and curiosity and humor all in one there. <laughs> so definitely a lot of fun stuff all rolled up into the uh, to the mix. So but hey, I'm, I'm going back to the book here and, you know, there's a lot of stuff here. Right. And, and you said there are a couple of things that I was really fixated on. Like, uh, how do you see innovation as a practice of awe? I thought that was kind of interesting. And the related topic of awe based leadership. Uh, they seem to go hand in hand. Like, what what is all right? I mean, we're our, our attention spans are like you know so short these days. Like, you know, how do you even get someone to that awe phase? Yeah. Uh, so awe it really fascinates me. Especially, I began as a painter as a young child. You know, we're very aware of the notion of the sublime and the spectacle. And awe, you know, it's most often understood as. You know, you're standing in front of the Grand Canyon or in the United States Ooh, or you know, some you go. gorgeous and beautiful and you have this sensory experience. But there's wonderful new science about how awe actually affects our brain, the neuroscience of what happens in our psychology. How do we reorganize ourselves because of awe? So what I've discovered, which really plays well into our practice of experience design, something we, we do in our studio, Awe, is, it's like it's so big and it's such a challenging idea. Oh, Our minds literally have to reorder themselves to accommodate and acquire something that does not compute. You know, you, you often say colloquially, whoa, that blows my mind. This language, it blows my mind. It's almost like a kind of informal way of saying, literally, my mind is reordering its operating system to acquire new code. And I think innovation as a practice of awe or the leadership through the language of awe, I believe that the next frontier of leader will need to use and harness awe to challenge and expand what we think is possible. Really challenging new frontier leaders, they're not gonna just move transactions and reorder things. Boring, boring, you know. You're gonna have to ask questions that use awe to actually literally blow our minds. Very, very good good thought in that. My my concern there is, and I see this, that we are so overstimulated. Um, we see so many things, we have so many things happening, right? Um, how much awe can you realistically produce, right? And you see that sometimes by leaders overawing, I would always say, by, by overhyping everything, and everything is great, and everything is awesome, right? Whatever Steve Jobs keynote and so on, where you know he's going to say off another 100 times <laughs> in the next 30 minutes, right? So it kind of like takes away from that, right? I think the mixture of that is, is the art, right? What, what kind of advice can you give to a leader to trying to follow the awe strategy, but not to overuse the awe argument? Enough? Well, no, I, I think it's a very important <laughs> point. But I would challenge that that fire hose that you're talking about, yeah. I'm not sure that's actually awe. And I think we've been duped, <laughs> right? <Hey. laughs> I think there's a kind of dopamine of the media addiction or the kind of, uh, you know, look over here in the sleight of hand of the magic trick. Uh, all of that excitement is not really awe. Awe forces Almost all, all five, six, seven senses, a higher order, almost kind of spiritual experience that you really kind of have to, and this I think gets to your question, 
you almost have to slow down in order to acquire a new idea. I think one of the things we do with our clients, with uh, leaders from Silicon Valley and New York and across every industry, we actually literally help teach them how to slow down in order to welcome true awe into the objective of what's even worth waking up in the morning to do. Yeah, I think that's, that's great advice. Slow down to hurry up, right? So very common, right? And often we run too much and we don't even get that thinking or the chance for our synapses to reconnect in the new way, right? To leverage the, the awe. That's, I think, great advice. Well, sorry, go ahead. I won't interrupt. No, jump in. Jump in. You're well, ready. I, I just, I love this particular thread. I think the, the running is, I mean, look, in a world based on capitalism, transactions make the merry-go-go-round. Right. I think actually, in some ways, COVID and the pandemic forced a slowdown in which I think the whole world confronted a kind of existential set of questions. And some of that awe, a kind of legacy of awe in a funny way, forced us to ask ourselves what matters. And I, and I yeah. think it we don't need a pandemic to welcome that kind of self-inquiry. And uh, actually, I think when we think about value creation, whether it's business or government, awe is an interesting device because it really questions what's meaningful or what's valuable. And I think, you know, all of business is full of transactions, but the project ahead of us may be to weed out what is really meaningful and what's just moving, you know, the digits back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, we are definitely seeing the shift, right? And in terms of how people think about leadership, how people think about, you know, what they need to do to inspire folks, uh, the whole notion of where we work, how we work, when we work, that's shifting as well, right? Our purpose and mission are shifting. It's, it's something we call great refactoring, uh, and, and people are looking at that. And one of the areas that's interesting is really about creativity and imagination, right? And, you know, you, you think about this in a different way. You think about creating equal rights for imagination. And I was curious, um, how do you explain that to someone? What are equal rights for imagination? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think we often think about economic inequity. Mm -hmm. uh, we introduce the idea of question inequity in the book. Uh, who yeah. has the power to frame the question? Yes. Who has the authority to set the agenda. And it's as though imagination has become a luxury good. Yes. So if, much, if one of the outcomes of an economic inequity is that um, the, the mere survival is the project, the right to even author a question seems out of reach for too many of us. And so part of the rebalancing of economic inequity is also by design and imagination and authority to set the agenda of what questions should society be engaged with. Right. I so mean, organizationally, tailoristically organized the way the innovation center, the excellence center will take care of that, right? You just think like you said, the transactions. This is why I found historically, if you look at it, the Kanban concept was so powerful because it got the people building the cars on the transactional side, on the working belt to say, what can we do to make this better? Right, so. Hey, remember, remember that conformity is the source of all evil. So, <laughs> so I love it. I love it. Seth, you know, I have to ask everybody in the background. I only see half a painting over. Yeah, here. what's going on back there? We're gonna we're gonna zoom in on that. What is in the background here? So, you know, I am calling you from Switzerland today. 
Oh, I'm, I'm in a I'm in a hotel room. Uh, I do not know what the painting is. I am a visitor, a stranger in a strange land. I apologize. Wow. Are you speaking? Are you speaking? German, Italian, or French outside? French. 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 Ooh la la. Très bien, alors. Okay. <laughs> That is awesome. We are here with Seth Goldenberg, author of Radical Curiosity and founder and CEO at Epic Decade. You can follow him on Twitter, Goldenberg Seth. Very, very interesting thoughts. And of course, get his new book, Radical Curiosity, where books are sold. So thanks for being on the show, Seth. Really appreciate okay. having you here. So, and have That's a wonderful right. evening. So. Delight. Very cool. It is Friday. Happy Friday, Holger. We're on Disrupt TV Friday. here. And uh, yeah, our. You know, our it, is, it is Saturday for me in India already. Uh, yeah, it's already a day has flown by. A day has already flown by for you. So, so what do you think about the guest today? We've been looking at different things. We've started talking with Zoho CEO, uh, you know, and founder with his philosophies. We had a chance to talk to our chief digital officer, BT150 uh, guest Kathy, and of course, we we talked to Seth, really talking about radical curiosity. So, all these steps are coming together in one spot, and uh, of course, right? Any thoughts from your end? Super interesting guests, right? Spanning half the world, 12 and a half time zones, right? Not counting me being here. But, I mean, very interesting. The humbleness, the realization of how important climate change is, how to give back, the transnationalism going to second centers with, with Sridhar, with Kathy bring a fresh set of eyes into uh, the healthcare space and her wishes for open source as a standard in e-healthcare. And I think she said she wants Google to buy Epic. Did I hear that right? And then super interesting ideas from, from Seth, right? My synapses, right, are dancing right now about uh, radical curious and ideas. So super interesting guest. What a privilege to be here. Moderate this with you. I had a blast. Well, you know, you know, our friend Gravinder is definitely watching the show. We are watching episode 287. Next week, we're going to have episode 288. Brad Van Leeuwen, co-founder and CEO of Cladera. Jeff Lerner, author of Unlock Your Potential and a special surprise guest uh, coming up. So you can follow Disrupt TV every Friday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2, 8, 2 p.m. Eastern. And thanks for being on the show. Happy Friday, Holger. Happy Saturday in your case. Have a wonderful show and a wonderful conference next week uh, out in Delhi. So uh, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thanks, everybody. We're going to move back to the green room. If anybody's guests are there, we'll see you there in a bit. Over to you, Al.